Right, today I'm sitting here with one of our wonderful Green members of the European Parliament, Molly Scott Cato. Hello, so nice to be here. <laughs> um, we've had a problem with technology, so we've fallen back on a phone instead of all these hundreds of pounds worth of equipment. But today we're going to talk about the future of food and farming, because the government's promised a new food and farming bill, and I've invited Molly to help us work through this issue. She's been sitting on the European Parliament's Committee on Agriculture and Rural Development. And she and her fellow MEPs have published a number of reports about farming after Brexit and have published their draft response to the government's consultation. Molly's based her views on personal experience, expertise of farmers, food producers, land managers and other people involved in food and farming in her constituency of the southwest of England. And later today, Molly and I are going to meet with the National Farmers Union President, Minette Batters, to talk through the same issues. Now, Molly and I first met probably, probably more than 20 years ago. And the way I remember it is that I saw an advertisement at Green Party conference. There was a new group starting up and they wanted somewhere to meet, a house to meet. And the group was called Nuda. And I thought, well, I've got quite a private garden. I can, I can offer Nuda some, some quiet space. I think David Taylor must have been involved in this. I think he probably was. And uh, it wasn't until I'd got well into um, establishing that they were coming to my house and so on that I realised I'd misread Nuda. And it was actually NVDA, which was um, Nonviolent Direct Action. Anyway, we had the workshop and it's very successful. But I think Molly was there. Is that your memory or, or not? Well, that's an interesting memory. I mean, I, I must admit, I can't. I do remember going to your beautiful house in Herefordshire, so perhaps that was that event. Well, it was, um, it was a good way to meet. Now, I, I wanted to ask you um, about a lot of issues. Uh, we're very tight for time, but could you just very briefly give us an idea of what you think are the pros and cons of the common agricultural policy? Well, I think very few people have a good word to say for the common agricultural policy. I mean, of all the aspects of the European Union, it's probably the most unpopular amongst Greens. And a lot of that criticism, I think, is completely fair. There are huge vested interests around how the money is spent, and it's about 40% of the whole EU budget goes towards farmers. So after the Second World War, you know, there was actually a lot of hunger in Europe. So the kind of mentality was, let's produce as much food as possible. And that was the sort of philosophy behind the common agricultural policy, supporting farmers to produce as much food as possible. But over time, obviously, we produce more food than we need. Now some of that food is dumped on markets in poorer countries. It's produced at the cost of the environment and, um, you know, species that we share the environment with. So we've needed to revise the way the common agricultural policy works, but the problem is there are massive vested interests there, landowners and agribusiness companies. So as Greens working in the European institutions, we've tried several times to green the cap, as we think of it, and uh, I've got to say we haven't had very much success. We have a lot more influence, bizarrely, and a lot more political success in the Economics and Monetary Policy Committee than we do in the Agriculture Committee, which is very much dominated by... Yeah, vested interests, really. We're going to come on to UK food and farming um, in a minute, local production of food. But I wanted to ask you first about the Environment Secretary, uh, Michael Gove, who seems to be saying a lot of the right things. And I get the feeling his heart's in the right place. Um, for example, he's talking about a new enforcement agency and a focus on soil health, public good and ecosystem services and things like that. What's your reading of the situation? 
I agree with you that what he's saying sounds very good. I'm not sure whether his heart's in the right place or whether any of us could find it, in fact. But uh, I'm, so I've got to say, I'm very suspicious of Michael Gove because he appears to have had a complete conversion. The amazing and wonderful thing is that as a clever man, he has understood what we're talking about. He's understood the nature for a holistic, the, the need for a holistic approach and the fact that, you know, nature has value to us, not just economically, but spiritually, although probably he wouldn't use that word. And so the sorts of things that Greens have been longing to hear coming from a deaf minister for years are finally coming out of his mouth. And I think that has just caused a great delight. And I'm also very happy about that. And it's it's meant that you know, in a way we can bank all that understanding about the environment, but whether he will follow through with any actual policies, I think, is a, is a question that remains open. There's a general feeling, I think, in the environment um, sort of organisations in, in Britain that if we can't get stuff done with him, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get it done ever. But my feeling is, I think probably his heart, if we can find it, is in the right place, but I think he has got a lot of opposition in the Cabinet. I mean, partly from the Treasury, and it goes back to these vested interests that care very much about making money rather than caring for the environment. And, and also, probably, from people who think he's aiming for some higher position than he's got already, so he is facing a lot of opposition. Well, I think you've got to consider who his friends are. You know, he's a big mate of Owen Paterson. They've been down to Owen Paterson's farm together and said how great it is growing GM crops and how that's the way to feed the world. And there's, you know, if we give him these green credentials and believe him and laud him now as the green saviour, then when he tells us what green farming's really about, it'll be very difficult for us to say, actually, that's not green, Michael. And there's a way in which he might frame green farming to be the sort of minimum till, much less use of machinery, less ploughing, but a large amount of chemicals being used. That's a kind of system of farming that is being pushed very strongly by agribusiness as the response to green concerns. And to me, it's absolutely not green. But if that's what he brings forward, and we've said, oh, yes, he's you know doing green Brexit, then it'll be quite hard for us to argue with him later, I think. I have spoken to him about this, and he, what he said to me is, well, judge me by my actions. And... You know, he's making baby steps, but you're right, we can't, we can't really trust anybody until um, it, big things happen. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do you think, for the UK, the three biggest priorities for reform, reforming our whole food and farming operation? Just three? Yeah, yeah, if um, you don't mind. Look, I think the most important thing that a lot of people haven't grasped in this country is that we, in order to tackle climate change now, we have to actually bring carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. We've gone beyond the point at which we can just make systems more efficient. And in order to do that, we have to use the land as a sort of massive store of carbon. So to, that would be my priority number one. But the really good thing about that is that the system of farming you need to do to achieve that, which is largely organic farming, building up um, soil carbon, agroforestry, all of these things also require much more sustainable farming systems and less intensive farming systems and therefore they would automatically bring biodiversity benefits so it's kind of a whole package um, which could be climate responsive it could hold water on the land better to prevent flooding could also increase soil density and you know biodiversity and all of that you'd get in one package if you did this the right way but i say you know if i can have a second priority it would be making sure that you don't carry on giving money to rich landowners. And the brilliant thing is, once you try and justify that, it's completely impossible. Nobody's trying to say, yes, James Dyson deserves a large amount of public money. So that is the good thing about actually having the opportunity to rethink farm support. 
we will have a serious cap now, you know, 50,000, 100,000 on what any individual farmer can receive. Um, going back to this issue of CO2, um, when, when we've been looking at transport in the past, we've always likened taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, like trying to take milk out of tea once you put it in. But what you're saying is we can actually do that if we care for our land properly. Well, yes. I mean, the carbon dioxide's out there. When a tree's growing, it's obviously absorbing that carbon dioxide. So if we planted a load of trees and then turned them into, you know, built houses from them or whatever then we would be capturing that carbon. But we can do that also through a farming system that, that depends on deep soils and uh, you know, deep carbon-rich soils rather than the sort of farming we have now which just uses a little bit of topsoil and then just fills it full of chemicals. Was this all in... You, you've done a response to the, the government consultation on food and farming. Was all this in that response? That response turned into a sort of War and Peace Volume 2. You know, it, was, it became enormous. When we were writing it, we sort of realised that actually everything is covered once you start thinking about land, food and farming. That's probably not very surprising. So we did cover this, but obviously not in enough detail. And actually in my office, we're working on a proposal now. Well, we're working on a piece of work that's basically about pulling together the best knowledge we've got of how to do this sort of carbon-fixing farming. Um, and obviously it depends on climate and soil type and all sorts of different things. I was at a fantastic farm earlier this week in Cornwall where they're experimenting with agroforestry and also with, you know, deep swards, that's what they say, a lovely deep sward you've got to have, Jenny. And, uh, yeah, so planting all sorts of different plants, and it brings amazing health benefits as well, because if you have different, if you have varied plants and not just ryegrass, then you're getting all sorts of different amino acids which are really good for your health. So, so many other benefits. I was going to ask you a bit later about um, inspiring projects that you visited, inspiring farms. So perhaps I will ask you later mm -hmm. for, for another one. Um, what do you think for us Greens the biggest difficulties are going to be in achieving the sort of farming that we think, um, well, is survivable? Well, the biggest problem is always these vested interests. I mean, you know, we've got the four, I think it's now is it three now since Bayer and Monsanto joined up, They're massive agribusiness companies. And they are, they've sort of got a grip and sort of death grip on the farming industry. You know, so when we meet the National Farmers Union later, they'll tell us how great this style of farming is. And if you go to a sort of mainstream farm, you know, they, they just, they can't understand any other model. There are very few farmers, apart from organic farmers, who remember a system, and a sort of mixed farm system without the heavy use of, of chemicals. And, um, yeah, so we do now have some really inspiring farmers who are doing something different. But if, you, if you're a new farmer, the person you take advice from, unfortunately, is the agronomist, so-called, who is the person working for that company or selling you their products. So there's an incredible sort of dependence there. And one of the things we included in our submission is the idea of much better, not just training, but mutual support and farmers learning from each other and trying to rebuild a community of knowledgeable farmers. They're doing great work at the Soil Association with the Innovative Farmers Scheme as well, which is that kind of model. And I think... You know, if farmers are going to receive public money for public goods, we need to check that they are producing those public goods. And that could all be part of a training system as well, maybe with retired farmers going along and advising what's happening on the farm. So there's somebody else to talk to, not just the man from Monsanto. To be fair to the National Farmers Union, in their response to the government's consultation, they did highlight the contradiction between um, trying to raise environmental and animal welfare standards, but also promising cheaper imports from places like America. And we mm -hmm. all know about the bleached mm -hmm. chickens and the hormone-fed beef and so on. So they are, I think, um, they do understand that there is a struggle here. Um, but which side do you think they're going to come down on? Well, 
the you know the national union of farmers the national farmers union in this country is dominated by the very large scale farmers that's the problem i mean they do represent the diversity of farmers and they do have people on the board you know organic farmers who understand what's going on it's obviously a very diverse sector and you know we're meeting minette and she's going to have to make that choice isn't she she's going to have to decide whether she goes with a sort of visionary green farming future or whether she sticks with the sort of powerful agribusiness interests and the big barley barons from East Anglia, who are kind of too dominant in that farming system at the minute. That's what my southwest dairy farmers will tell me anyway. So. But it, it's always a bit of a struggle, like in every industry. It's a very diverse industry. It will be interesting uh, meeting them this afternoon. I might have to write a little blog about that afterwards. Um, uh, we Greens use words like sustainable and resilient all the time. And do you think most people understand what that means? Or... You know, oh, because know. sustainable often is meant to be is it, people interpret it as economically sustainable. I can you keep selling this product? Yeah. Whereas for greens, it's something completely different. Some people just mean something that lasts, don't they? Yes. When they say sustainable, I'm not sure that even greens kind of would agree about what it means. Actually, sustainable. Um, I do like the word resilient because I think that means you know how well a system responds to stress. And after all, we know that because we're building up environmental crises these stresses are going to come whether it's flooding incidents or droughts or whatever so I think a resilient farming system is what we need but also a resilient food system because after all um, you know again with extreme weather events sea level rise and so on we'd be much better placed having our own food production close to hand rather than relying on imports there's no need to have farm um, to have food imports we could be growing, particularly fruit and vegetables, which we import a lot of from pretty unsustainable systems in the Netherlands and so on. Well, if we, uh, people often say if we look back to the wartime, we managed incredibly well, but then we did, did dig up parks and make allotments. And, and there were like quite that. a lot fewer of us, but farming's got more efficient since then, so... Yes. Yeah, I mean, and, and the main thing is to, to start out in the morning thinking what's available here rather than, hmm, I fancy a pineapple. Yes, you know, that's that's indeed. the sort of craziness of the current food system. Not that I don't like pineapple, because I do. Yeah, and bananas. Um, now, I asked on Twitter for some questions for you, and I wonder if you could just um, uh, just answer them very quickly, because if they want to know more, they can, they can get in touch. Um, I've got two in quick succession from Rosalind Redhead. Why do we import 8% vegetables? You've answered that. We don't need to. And um, surely that's unsustainable with freight and it's poor food security, of course. Yes, yeah, I think I've, I've just covered that. And obviously with Brexit and the arrangements over the customer union and so on, this is also going to stress this system. So much better to have local production for local consumption. And she also asked, France has seen a collapse in birds, Germany a collapse in insects, Europe's seen a massive decline in trees... How can we reverse this with less damaging agricultural policies? Well, I think that does take us back to the, the heavily chemical-intensive um, agriculture. And it's, it's quite difficult to prove directly which chemicals are kill, killing which birds and so on, but it's been the intensification of farming that's led to this massive decline in biodiversity, which is like, it's, it's a catastrophe and not taken seriously enough, but farming is at the heart of it. That's what we're going to say to the NFU this afternoon. Right, right. Good to give you some lines. <laughs> um, the next question is from one of my favourite people, Tom Chance. He's at Tom underline Chance. Dutch agriculture is extremely efficient and high output, possibly leaving more land for rewilding, but leaves little space for wildlife on farmland. And UK organic tends to be the opposite. What's Molly's vision for the mix of agricultural systems we should aim for? Well, I think we should start by considering what we can produce most efficiently with any bit of land. So in some, you know, in rich fertile valleys, 
it's a sensible place to grow fruit and vegetables, for example. But I mean, if we're talking about much more marginal areas, like let's say Dartmoor, you know, it doesn't make sense to try to farm there. Although traditionally people have drug, dug drainage ditches so that they could provide grazing. But what would make sense now is to block up those drainage ditches as they're doing in lots of places, let the peatland restore itself. And then, you know, that's a useful carbon sink. So I think that's the kind of balance we need to be looking at. Sometimes the carbon advantages and the biodiversity advantages are more important in return for our public money than food growing. And just to say a little bit about the Dutch system, I mean, it's very interesting because obviously an awful lot of the land they're growing food on is reclaimed from the sea. So they have this incredibly sort of techie approach to life in general and to farming. Um, but, it, you know, it has a, a massive environmental impact. And, uh, yeah, I mean... It, so it's, it's not necessarily want to emulate... He's saying extremely efficient, but I would question what you mean by efficiency there. You might be getting a lot of food per land area, but there's a, lot, a large cost there as well. Uh, the next one is from Philip Vabulous. What are the most counterintuitive ideas to improve farming? Both ideas that seem green but aren't, and vice versa. I think this might be the question around that sort of what they call climate smart agriculture, which means um, not ploughing the land. Because obviously when you plough, you release a lot of carbon dioxide. So they're saying we won't plough, we'll clean up the land, as they call it, by blasting it with glyphosate and then dig little holes and put plants in. And I've been to farms where they do that. And uh, yeah, I, I, think that is, I think that is counterintuitive because I actually don't think that's either clean or green. But I can see that, you know, we need to provide evidence of which types of farming are actually best in terms of carbon emissions. And the next, right, Scott Redding asks loads and loads of different questions. Uh -huh. But he does ask one that I think you've covered already, which is about connecting farmers who are financially and environmentally successful with farmers who would like to be. Now, presumably the Soil Association does a lot of that. Yeah, they do a lot of that through their Innovative Farmers Scheme. And I think also we need to be thinking about how to bring new people, young people, but also maybe not so young people, into farming. And that's very much about sharing expertise that's already there. At the moment, we very much have a model where farms are inherited and passed on through the generations and that has led to a lot of farmers you know high age amongst farmers and often um, a failure to pass on that expertise to other people so <clears throat> I think a yeah a sort of not not a college-based scheme but a system for sharing expertise is really important. I would just like to say that being over 60 doesn't mean you're decrepit. You um, can take up farming Jenny. I could I'm still <laughs> young enough um, and the next question is from Helen Gration is agroforestry a viable alternative in the UK? And you just tweeted yes, so yes. I presume that's your answer. And then she said, could she have a bit more detail? And I <laughs> said, perhaps by email. But no, I think uh, this is going back to what I said earlier about needing to work out... You know, this is a new idea, agroforestry. I mean, it can be really powerful. It can help... The roots of trees obviously go a lot deeper, so they can help to hold moisture in the soil if you're having a drought and hold the soil on the land when you haven't got crops there to stop runoff and so on. So, but we don't actually have much experience of it in this country, and we don't really know which soil types it's best for, which crops grow best when there are trees there. At the moment as well, if you put trees down a field, then DEFRA is likely to say you've now got three fields, so you have to apply three different times for your subsidy. So, you know, anything new that comes along, there's quite a lot of working out to do. But basically, I think we should invest a lot more time and energy in working that through, because the trees are very good at, at capturing carbon, and they also provide a lot of other benefits, biodiversity benefits as well. Course, yeah. already mentioned. Yeah. Lots of food for, for wildlife. Um, the next question is Ruth Buckley Salmon. What would Molly's ideal post 
common agricultural policy landscape look like? I'm obviously going to have to just send her War and Peace yes. too, aren't I? But, <laughs> yes. uh, but I think, no, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's difficult to know what it might look like. I think we've grown used to this vision of sort of, you know, empty fields and then you have all this yellow oilseed rape field and then you're used to seeing fields with nothing on them as well, which is really bad for the soil. Um, so I think, I think the landscape might look very different. I mean, one thing we might see is a lot more growing of protein crops for our consumption as well as for animal consumption. So we move away from importing protein crops and we also move towards plant-based diets ourselves. So that would look very different from the landscape we're used to looking at now. And we also probably see more crop rotation because if you, don't, if you have integrated pest management rather than heavy use of chemicals, then you need to use rotations more. So we might see smaller fields and more different variety of crops being grown on those fields. So it actually might look quite different in 20 years' time. It sounds a lot like the more differentiated landscape that we would have seen 50 years ago. Yeah, I think so, and also mixed farms as well, which is, I mean, obviously we are saying eating less meat and eating higher quality meat, but a lot of the farming that we're talking about would rely on manure, probably human manure as well as animal manure. But, you know, if you take animals out of the equation, then you're talking about growing... Um, you know, green manure crops as well, which people aren't used to at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, we're on a sort of transition towards all of that. Um, and, yeah, we, won't, we certainly won't be going backwards because our diets will be very different from the people who lived, you know, before the Second World War. But, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's hard to envision the countryside, but it will definitely not look like it does now. And the last question, in fact it's questions, is from Ella, Emma Bullard and you've covered a lot of this about how we get greater food security, how we move towards a less meat dependent agriculture and diet. Is the Zero Carbon Project report a good place to start? And she also says, I'm a great fan of you both by the way, thanks for all the good work. Oh, so isn't that lovely? Nice. It's so We're nice. We get so much <laughs> nastiness thrown at us. Especially on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I actually haven't looked at the Zero Carbon Britain report recently. I think the second version focused a lot more on, on carbon capture and land-based um, responses to climate. So it would be a good idea to look at that, actually. But, yes, I think that is, that is indeed what we're looking at and moving towards... Because, obviously, meat and dairy are part of the same system as far as agriculture is concerned. So moving away from that, make, making that a smaller part of our diets and some people moving away from meat and dairy and taking vegan diets... But I think working through what that would look like at a system level hasn't really been done yet. You know, we still have people who are vegan, but that means they buy different things when they go shopping. We need to have that knocking back into the farming system. We had an interesting report we launched in the Parliament recently about protein crops, which had been produced by the, the Vegan Society. So I know they're thinking about that, but, you know, they need to be having conversations with farmers about that. And again, we're going to talk about that with Minette this afternoon. I did try a vegan diet for a week in January and I didn't miss cheese, I didn't miss, definitely didn't miss meat, but the one thing I did miss was eggs and I eat a boiled egg about once every two years and yet I missed eggs for some reason, so well, there might have been some deficiency in my diet. Well, I would say it depends whether you're doing it, for, whether you're taking a vegan diet for um, climate reasons or for animal welfare reasons because if you have a chicken and you feed the chicken scraps you know the environmental impact of that is, is quite small and you treat the hen well yeah exactly but if, if you're thinking it's just totally wrong to consume any animal products then obviously that, that's not a solution but a lot of what's wrong in terms of the, the meat and dairy system is just the appalling conditions of animal welfare and over intensification 
I'm going to ask you a few questions now in the last few minutes uh, um, about how to counter our common arguments against the sort of green policies that we always promote. And uh, one of them is, uh, when we've got a really big business, when we have all these big agro businesses like Monsanto, do you feel that we can actually win in terms of promoting our policies over theirs? Absolutely. I mean, that's about market control, market power. It's not just the agribusinesses, it's the supermarkets as well. We have the, um, what is it called? Competitions and Markets Authority, I think it's called now. And their job is to make sure that nobody controls too much of the market. But we've just, and also at the European level, we've got Margarita Vestag, a competition commissioner, and she did call in the Monsanto-Bayer um, deal, but in the end she, she passed it. You know, she said you have to sell a few bits off, but she let it go through, and I think that was a mistake. I mean, I think we should have maximum levels of market share that any of these companies can own and then they should be broken up so there's actually competition i mean that's what capitalists like is capitalists like isn't it but you know so that would really Only when it challenge seems their them, power. It seems. well yeah because we're actually seeing more and more markets that are very concentrated and this is part of the problem here and it's true on the on the um, retail side as well with supermarkets who then put pressure on farmers and take too much of the value out of production Okay, these are a few things that people always say. For example, we need pesticides to grow food. It's the only practical way of combating pests. And we need artificial fertilisers in order to be productive. Organic farming is too expensive. Well, if you have reasonably you know, good quality soils, as we do in this country, you can build a cycle of fertility. You, know, you have to make sure there's manure going onto that soil or, or you know, nutrients going back into the soil, but you can do that without using artificial fertilisers. In terms of the pesticides, I think this is one where, you know, the, obviously there was a time when we didn't have pesticides and organic farmers are working without that now, but a lot of farmers have become very dependent on those chemicals and they, they just don't understand a system that could work without them. So. There, I think, you know, the whole idea of integrated pest management is really important, and we do a lot of work on that in the European context, and there is a programme for in, in, um, integrated pest management, but again, it hasn't been spread out as fast as it should, so that's something Greens at the European level are pushing for all the time, for the Commission to follow through on their plan and actually really put pressure on farmers to use those systems rather than chemical systems. Um, another one is, we need big farms and big fields and big machinery to maximise productivity. I think that is just a misplaced efficiency argument because um, actually, you know, there's a cost if, if you have that intensification and that larger scale. For example, you then produce, like if it was a dairy farm, you know, you're producing a massive amount of slurry, you've now got a problem getting rid of that slurry. Whereas if you had a more local, you know, if you had a smaller farm where you used that manure back onto your fields where you then grew fruit and vegetables or whatever, you know, it's that cyclical system and smaller scale is actually a lot more efficient. And another question, having lots of people working on the land would be a step backwards. Well, I, I just don't agree with that. I think one of the things that's happened in farming is that it's become, yeah, the, the, the jobs that it generated have gone, they've been replaced by machines, and the outcome is actually that a lot of rural communities are just dormitories now. They don't have the sort of life they used to have. So part of the purpose of what we're proposing for the farm support system is that we would revitalise communities and as well as the land. So, you know, we'd have our biodiversity but we'd also have human diversity out there in the landscape and I, I think that would be good for human welfare, be good for public health as well. A lot of us use allotments for our own sort of mental health, don't we? Mm. Get out there digging, getting our it's hands dirty. It's a little dirty. bit like not cycling to work and having an electric bike in the yes. cellar, isn't it? Yes. Know, why, don't, why don't we just have people working and growing food? People also say it's okay to import staple foods from other countries. 
Well, I mean, this is quite a complicated question because obviously there's a lot of foods that are part of global markets and also involved in global speculative activity. So um, then, you know, if you're dependent on one of those foods and somebody else then starts buying it in a much richer country, then, you know, you, that, that leads to, to hunger in the poorer countries. So I think all countries should take responsibility for providing for most of the staples that they can themselves. And then that would mean that land was available in the poorer countries for people to, to, to produce that. I mean, Feed their children that, yeah, and yeah, produce enough sure. to send their kids to school. And sure, like that. absolutely. Right, another one that, I, that always infuriates me. We need uh, genetically modified crops to feed the world because scientific innovation is the only way forward if we're going to feed our growing population. Yeah, well, the scientific evidence on GMs is not strong. Um, I mean, the, I, I think it's very much about control of crops and control of markets, actually, and it's you know very much been driven by the agribusiness sector. I, I, I mean, I'm not convinced that people that propagate GMs are actually concerned about starving children in the third world. Pardon me for being a little bit cynical about that. But, but more concerned you, about profit. Yeah, and the problem with food security is largely one of distribution. And, you know, if we stopped wasting food and distributed food more fairly then that would be more of a contribution to food security than genetic modification. We are seeing more of that, aren't we? We are seeing supermarkets sell more unusual shaped vegetables and that sort of thing, or, yeah. or using them for other, I don't know, using them for smoothies rather than throwing them away. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a move in that direction. You always wonder a little bit how much that's about marketing. But, um, yeah, I mean, it should be encouraged, but I think it's more about just the way we shop, the fact that we live on our own, the fact that you know more and more people living on their own, it's not efficient to cook food, you end up throwing a lot of food away, I certainly know this myself. So I think you know, it's, it's about social systems as well as about economic systems, more shared eating, you know, canteens, fantastic thing for feeding people efficiently compared to one person toddling off to the supermarket. One of the things that's inf that, well, there's lots of things that infuriate me about Parliament, actually, <laughs> most of them about the politics, but one of the things is we don't uh, collect our food waste here mm. on, on every floor of the, of, of the building, which mm. I think is a very retro uh, way to behave. And, well, you know, uh, we're trying to egg Michael Gove on to allow food waste to be fed to pigs again uh, um, on the basis that, you know, OK, this problem started with, in Britain with foot and mouth, but then it became an EU-wide ban, and if he wants to do something that the EU isn't doing, then he can let farmers feed food waste to pigs again so uh, that would be fantastic apparently somebody told me they met him on a farm recently and he brought that up himself so really? perhaps forgetting somewhere really? put something down in the lords about it if you like oh yeah that's a very good <laughs> idea um we're going to finish now and i've got to apologize again for the technological failings <laughs> sorry about that um and i'd really love to have talked about rewilding and flood management and increasing protein growing and improved animal welfare, of course, which mm -hmm, we haven't covered. Mm -hmm. The docking of pigs' tails, which mm -hmm. still goes on in spite of EU law. Um, but perhaps we can come back to these issues when we've fixed our microphones and our computers. Definitely. Mm. Great having you. Thank you very much. <laughs>